everybody's story is an absolutely unique point of view. And it's those stories that we want to hear. It, it's, it's not the technologist stories that we want to hear expressly. It's, it's you, grandpa, and you, 12 year old kid who is no one is paying attention to, and you, person across the ocean who I thought of as an enemy country, and you, a guy that works at the variety store. Those stories are the ones that we have to receive in a way that we haven't been able to before. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Animator's Guide to Virtual Reality. My name is Rick Delishny here in just east of uh, Toronto, Canada. And welcome to all our new subscribers. We're really enjoying uh, the uh, all the people coming in from uh, all around the world to listen to what we have to say or what we've uncovered in the world of animation and virtual reality. On today's show, we've got... Kara Malitsky Sanchez. Now, he founded VRTO in May of 2005. He's the editor-in-chief of IndieGameReviewer.com since 2008 and founder of Fiverr's, the Festival of International Virtual and Augmented Reality Stories. He's a graduate of UCLA's uh, certification programs in cinematography, producing and digital media, respectively, and is an alumnus of the Werner Herzog's Rogue Film School, Los Angeles chapter. He's been asked to speak about the intersection of technology and the arts at uh, North by Northeast, City Gear Expo in L.A., and the Toronto Star and NAB in Vegas. He is also the founder of Transport, Transportive Technology, a virtual reality production company, and Constant Change Media Group, a 360 media company and disruptive media consultation firm. Karim, good, good, good day. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. It's nice to uh, be able to speak to my friends in Canada. Right, and that's actually really good to, to bring that a point. You you are you wear your hat in different cities. So where where do we find you right now? Where do you share your time? Um, so I am right now in Los Angeles. I've been here for twenty years. Uh, I grew up in Toronto. Uh, left when I was about twenty two years old. Um, so that's in ninety six, uh, and. I really go between the two. I, I find that they're two unique territories with important things to offer. And I think it's important to cross-pollinate those markets. Um, so that will be something that we'll probably find is really relevant to to VRTO, which is my virtual reality meetup group. And um, I think what sets it apart maybe from from others like it. We're going to touch on that again and bring us back to Toronto, but we've been trying to connect for for, for actually a while now because you you are doing quite a bit of traveling and and you've been extremely busy. And of course, you just came back from the NAB show in Las Vegas, and um, I, I I've been obviously following that. I I wasn't able to make it to NAB this year, and I, it's always interesting to see. Obviously, you've got the big football field thing that everyone knows for NAB, and that's the National Association of Broadcasters Convention. But it's it's always interesting to see what's happening in the parking lot. It's always happening to see what's happening in the hotels, sort of off on the fringe or on the strip or just off the strip. And this year, absolutely, as we all sort of hoped and predicted, VR really was um, – um, the momentum was continuing on from South by and, and, and from Sundance and it was uh, moving into a new territory, sort of the broadcast world. So you were there and this is really, really exciting for me to get sort of your perspective on this. So it's a big question, but we've got time. Tell me what you saw. So last year uh, when I went to NAB, I've gone to NAB uh, for 10 years now um, and I go as press. So the cool thing about a press badge is that you get access to all the rooms, not just the hotel rooms and the parking lots, but also you go into the classes, the intensive training stuff, the the radio luncheon, the TV luncheon. And, and why that's relevant is NAB 10 years ago was a very much a an old gentleman's club, yes. cigar chomping, steak eating, <laughs> local broadcasters who, you know, talked about policy and bandwidth uh, auctions and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and I and, never forget, I, I have been to many NAB shows and the bigger booths back then would be like the, the transmitter towers and like 
just this really oh, yeah. weird cre- uh, legacy equipment that is very important to the infrastructure of telecommunications, of course. But it's like for someone like 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 with me, and I, you know, I'm not going by in telecommunication towers. But it's it's interesting to see. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Yeah, you, you, no, the whole was- foggy smoke smoking cigar is totally was perfect. Yeah, I mean that's what it was, and and you know, and understandably, when the world started to change, and even before cable cutting was a term, they started to get a little, let's say, upset. Not even worried yet. There, there was a confidence, the sort of a, and even a hubris, dare I say, um, oh well, you know, we're not going to worry about the internet. Da 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 da. <laughs> we'll just shut them down. You know, yeah. um, so that that was trouble for a while in the mid period there of my attending and then they realized that they were not going to win that way and that in fact what they needed were the young people and the young blood and they started pivoting really hard and NAB shifted from being this sort of hodgepodge um, esoteric technicians party to a very dynamic very exciting very forward moving um, massive technology conference. And for me, NAB is the one I go to as opposed to CES because even though NAB comes later in the year than CES, NAB is where the decision, decision. makers yep. mm-hmm. about what is going to be adopted, what sort of policies are going to happen, what you know, what is going to happen with the platforms that carry the things that consumer products ultimately will matter to mm-hmm. are decided. Yeah. So if NAB says, we think that this is what is important, and I'm talking, you know, SIMPTI, who is literally creating the standards of the signals and the software and all of that stuff, you know, if they decide that, and I'll try not to get too weirdly technical, but if they decide that things that color has got to function in a certain way on a monitor in order to be called something that's broadcast ready. Yeah. They call that recommendation seven oh nine, and mm-hmm. this year it was rec twenty twenty. Um, so th- they're talking about high dynamic range color now, and and instead of calling it um, uh, you know foot candles, I don't even know what they're replacing, but nit is the new term for how bright something is, and you have a measurement of nits and uh, you know, a couple of years ago, they were talking about LED lighting and when yeah. when there was a standard that was going to be able to replace tungsten lighting. And I mean, we're talking about phasing out the tungsten light bulb from the White House level um, and replacing it with LED lighting that the industry then has to say, okay, so is 3200 Kelvin temperature legitimately that is it a consistent color temperature that we can paint sets and do costume design to or is it a floating kind of uh color space so this is the kind of stuff that happens at nab and a few years ago when they started getting into 3d and realizing that this might be a huge upsell to fading technology yeah um and you know where this is going but (laughs) anyway 3D became all the rage uh, in everything, in cinema, in software, um, and then it, and then eventually it sort of trickled down into television sets and you know getting Best Buy to start pushing people on 3D TVs, and it was a colossal failure because uh, they just simply didn't think it. Th- I mean, I'm sure they thought it through, but there was just this sort of like understanding of the market and of the end consumer on a real practical level where it was like, look, once you get people to buy these 3D TVs and they're having a football party and somebody has to come over and buy and, and you know, put on a, a 30 to $50 pair of um, 3D glasses, what do you do when you've got more people than you have glasses? Yeah. And, you know, it just, anyways, there was, there was problems and the whole thing crashed and burned. And so what I, can tell you about this NAB was that 3D TV and all of its associations was like the scarlet letter. Um, people just didn't want to talk about it. It was it was used as this kind of anathema to market success and implementation. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then and then it died so hard in the conversation. <laughs> 
<laughs> that that people already started resurrecting it by the end of the conference and saying, yes, but now it's making a comeback. And with virtual reality, we're going to see stereoscopy come back and make this huge renaissance. Um, so that was interesting. And of course, that was in the back of everyone's mind, not even the back in the front of their minds as as they were looking to VR and how VR is going to be accepted and implemented. And, you know, people were a little bit more sober. It was, you know, this is a long run on sentence, but essentially (laughs) last year when I went to NAB, what I saw was that VR was in the back alleys of of NAB. You know, I felt like I could get knifed by somebody in those dark corners that they had the VR panels happening. But it felt like an underground revolutionary thing. And and the people that were talking about it seemed really from the future. Hmm. So I left there last year and I immediately had to make some decisions because I was smelling what was coming, you know, out of the kitchen. And it was this is this is now trickling into the NAB people. And when the NAB people start talking about things. We start talking about policymakers and we start talking about studio heads and, you know, it shifts. So I decided I have to start um, a meetup group that's going to put some of my high-minded, very positive, hopeful, idealistic stuff in play before the glut comes and it gets out of our hands. And I had to think about what market to do that in because I'm in LA and I'm in Toronto and I'm thinking there's no way I can win in LA to have any sort of leverage enough to influence things. Cause like, frankly, I've been here for a long time and it's, there's big, 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 big players in LA. Yes. Um, so I thought Toronto is an interesting place because Toronto is this incredible incubator for ideas uh, an underground um, e- experimentation, maybe that's buoyed a little bit by by government um, grants that support media initiatives, uh, and the fact that it's it's like an American city in a lot of ways, but it's not an American city. It's outside of the Iron Media Dome. It. it it's just an interesting and powerful city for creativity. You have this huge cultural mosaic um, that's constantly churning. It's and it's, you know, it's just it's a it's a very vital city. It's not one that rests on its laurels and um, and well, so I thought that's a perfect place for mm-hmm. VR to grow up right now. I agree. Yeah, there's definitely a, a nurturing incubator feel to uh, culturally what's going on in Canada, particularly in Toronto. We're going to come back to that in a second, but I want to bring it back to NAB for a bit because not only was VR happening and there were things happening and there was, well, policy happening, um, you were there and uh, you were you had you had the meet up there. And uh, tell me how that how did that work out? We, and what, what did you see and what did you learn through the meetup? And then sort of what was going on? Cool. Let's talk about all the goodies. So, yeah. um, so we had a meetup and it was in the midst of the VR pavilion area. And the P, the VR pavilion area was arguably <clears throat> in, uh, orchestrated by a couple of parties. One would have been um, that it was coordinated by the VR Fest people the okay. vr fest people are have been around since the dawn of time meaning like three years ago <laughs> and they coordinated the 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 vr party at the omni at caesar's palace and they coordinated the show floor more or less um kind of the events the auxiliary events and the speakers on the panels and so on uh, and they were also incidentally at ces the yes. other part of it was um tim dashwood who is a fellow Ontarian, uh, Canadian, um, arguably told NAB, you know, last year there was just sort of these scattered VR booths and companies. Why don't we consolidate them into their own section and call it a VR pavilion? So he kind of helped them to cherry pick uh, some good options for having on that show floor. And... And so, you know, it was a smallish area in the northwest corner of the North Hall, um, which traditionally has hosted Cisco and, you know, like these big enterprise-type companies. Mm -hmm. 
but now we saw the 360 Heroes guys had an RV truck. Uh, Nokia Ozo had their booth, which um, a little shockingly had silver sh- short shorty booth babes hawking their $60,000 camera. Um, which, you know, is like, I was like, wow, I should be nice to these guys because we have to support everybody in the ecosystem right now. But honestly, dudes, like marketing a, a VR camera with booth babes is a little bit antiquated at this point. It, it, there's there's a huge legacy, unfortunately, that they have to shake, and and it, it it worked for so many years. I know it's a bit of it's a bit embarrassing, but it did work back in well, the day. Well, yeah, but they're going to need to understand the VR market as it is now, and not you know to mm-hmm. talk about um, VR cameras like their their Porsches. I mean, this mm-hmm. has to be democratized, and it you know, I mean, let's look at what Google did. Google said we're just going to put out a spec for how you make this crap out of cardboard because they obviously understand something about how VR has got to work in order to be implemented right now. It's not about people in high towers who can afford super weird gear that is hard to use. It's about giving it to the kids that are doing Minecraft in school. So, you know, there's different minds about this. Just beside Ozo, there was the Sphericam booth and Mm. that thing is Awesome. The Sphericam is a 38-sided octahedron. It's got six sensors and six discrete chips. It has global shutter and gen lock, which incidentally was um, GoPro's big brag this year. It's like, oh, well, we made our little mm-hmm. rig uh, implemented uh, 360 rig, and it has gen lock. Sphericam also has and just just roll back just in case because we're getting into some pretty deep uh, techno okay, uh, video nerd stuff like Genlock. Just explain why that's significant when you're running with multiple cameras. What what does that mean? Well, yeah, it's a way to make sure that all of your cameras are synchronized essentially, and global shutter also makes sure that you don't have like seams and uh, you know like shuttering effects and and yep. so on. Yep, that's cool. Um, just just in case people are like, what? No, that's cool. Right, right. So what's happening is you have six sensors and six chips. And instead of having – I'll even back up a little more. Normally, when you want to shoot 360 video of high quality these days, you're going to take six little GoPro cameras and you're going to have them point in each direction. Yeah. And the problem with that is – well, one of the problems with that is that each camera is not exactly the same. The sensor may not be the same. The barrel of the lens may not be equal to, you know, in each camera that's built. Um, so when you have an integrated camera solution like a Sphericam that's all in one, it's one ball, you can't take it apart. Hmm. Uh, you've got all of these discrete separate sensors, but they have to run concurrently and in sync with each other. Yeah. So... It's a really handsome solution. Now, the amazing thing about the Sphericam is it's $2,500 all in. Yeah. Um, so even that is a cheaper solution than I think the GoPro solution, I, I believe, because it also comes bundled with the stitching software and the live streaming software. Um, whereas with the GoPro, they have the uh, color K-O-L-O-R uh, stitching software, which on its own, the license is like nine hundred dollars. So, the GoPro thing—you have to buy six GoPro cameras, which are each about five hundred bucks, plus the software, plus the the mount, and all of that—and it gets up into the three thousand plus range. Um, For a kit, so basically Spiracam, something you need to build. Yeah, that's crazy. You're right, exactly, and it's not that handsome yet. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, each of those GoPros has to fire at the same time, meaning they have to turn on at the same time. They got to not overheat. If any one of them goes down, you're basically screwed. You have to start over. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the Sphericam, it's all integrated. Now, the Nokia camera, the Ozo, is the same thing. It does offer uh, 3D and super high resolution. And I saw the Ozo demo. To be honest doesn't look that much better than my GoPro uh, stuff. So the Ozo has also got integrated surround audio, which is cool. But mm-hmm. they want $60,000 for it. <laughs> um, and their software is not quite there yet. In fact, I'm being diplomatic because I want them all to succeed. But 
I think they actually ended up if you if you hand them all of your assets at the end of your workflow with the Ozo, they'll actually give you a fifteen thousand dollar discount on the camera. What does that mean to go through? Do they have a distribution channel for for short um, films? I think it means like that you you make your stuff available to them for quote big bunny ear quote research purposes. <laughs> I I don't really know what that means. Does that mean do they own some sort of part of the intellectual property or I'm not even sure, but it was the whole thing is a little too shady and complicated for me. Sphericam seems like a very simple solution to a lot of those problems. Okay. So what do we what else did we see there? Was it was it all hardware then or were, were, did you see filmmakers or, or any any kind of content happening at NAB in, in, in that in that in the VR space in the northwest corner of the building? Sure. There was a lot of stre- live streaming companies. Mm. Uh, I won't go through them individually, but there was a lot of live streaming companies, startups from Beijing, from Spain, from you know, people that were doing traditional live streaming stuff before that are now either expanding or pivoting or scaling into 360 uh, video. Um, and that's cool. You know, it's interestingly enough, Ustream and Livestream, who are both the, the guys that have been winning big in the live streaming space, neither of them had 360 solutions at all. Um, really? Ustream actually got bought by Microsoft. No, sorry, that's not true, by IBM. Um, and Livestream was showing this thing called the Mevo, M-E-V-O, which is a kind of cylindrical-looking camera. Oh, that, that thing's is, cool. Yeah, it does. It captures yeah. uh, the depth of field in the imaging. It allows you to selectively uh, pick what focus focal length you're looking for. Is, is that the one? It's... Um, I'm not sure if that we're talking about the same thing. Maybe we are, but essentially okay. it's supposed to be a – it's like an automated pseudo AI studio in a camera for like $500 or something. So this is what it does that's really unique. It it First of all, you have to pay a subscription to use this thing – uh, in addition to the cost of the camera to put it on the web as you desire. But if you stream it to Facebook, it's free. Um, it's a weird business model, but, you know, whatever. So what it does <laughs> is this camera shoots like a really wide field of view. I'm not sure what it is. It's like maybe 270 or something. Sure. And and then when you you open it up on your iPad and you can monitor what you're filming with the camera. And then... Let's say that you and I are talking side by side in a room. The camera will start to digitally uh, zoom in and crop and pan over to the speaker. And then when the other person talks, it'll pan over to them. And you can also, it'll also identify the faces of all the people in the frame. And it'll try to self edit the scene based on what it thinks is the most important. This isn't what I was thinking of. I'm looking at it now. This is pretty, pretty whacked out technology. Holy smokes. Yeah, it's hey, kind did of you see bananas, it working? actually. Um, I did see it working, and it looks dumb. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's really, really cool on one level. I mean, on one level, it's amazing what they've done because what I like is having a screen that has a bunch of things in frame uh, that's high resolution enough that you can crop in you know, without introducing a lot of noise or pixelation or artifacting. And, and then I can tap on your face and have the camera do a slow pan over and a zoom in on you and then, and then tap to another person on the interface and it'll just do a jump cut over to the other person. So that's a really cool technology and they've totally succeeded in a way of doing that. In practice, it kind of looks stupid. Um, I should be polite about that, I guess, but, but I mean, it's not what, you know, it's kind of like those ads for sea monkeys in the back of comic books where you thought you were going to get this little like kingdom of people with like tridents and stuff. And then when they send it to you, it's like shrimp brine. Um, It's a bit of that. It's like, oh, wow, I'll have my own TV studio and it'll do all the editing on its own and I'll be broadcasting live to Facebook. But it, it sort of looks like somebody's panning their webcam around a little bit. <laughs> Sorry, I'm holding myself back. That's crazy. So you, you, the shrimp brine analogy, if that would be, that's, that's just, but I know exactly what you're talking about. 
I know what you're talking about, but I thought, what a bit, of, a bit of smoke and mirrors. But uh, you know, it, 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 the, people are really motivated, really uh, very highly to find the sort of the next big thing, and uh, they're throwing a lot of stuff up against the wall. And uh, it sounds that sounds kind of crazy, but it, it was memorable. You, 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 here we are talking about it now, so it it struck a chord yeah. in some strange way. Well, I mean, first of all, Livestream is a major company nowadays. You know, they're mm. used by like. I can't decide which one is Ustream and Livestream, but MTV and the Oscars and like all those kinds of people use these services. Yeah. So it's a big deal when in the middle of their show floor they have this thing on a uh, on a pedestal, and they're and they're saying this is going to be Facebook's like video streaming solution and so on. So right. I mean, of course we have to pay attention to it. You know, these things are first generation; they're prototypes. Sometimes uh, we might be hearing about this three years before the public ever does. Mm-hmm. So. That's another thing. I take that with a grain of salt because the things that we talk about at NAB that we may be a little nonchalant about or whatever, I mean, literally sometimes don't hit the market for five or six years after the fact. Yes. Um, this and, is and the show where that happens. Like, yeah, the CES show is a little more, um, you know, ready to go out the door. It's a consumer show. It's, it's for people that they, they're ready to buy. But you're right. Um, if you If you know where to look and if you have good shoes – you can find them and you can find some technology um at NAB that uh, yeah you're right um uh is 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 ahead of the curve in terms of regulation or manufacturing or what can be made and um you know we we we've seen that with all sorts of technology but um so what was the outside of the VR space at NAB or, um what was the the buzz? Were you were you hearing about it sort of about, around the floor? I mean, last year, I guess I was there two years ago. You know, the 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 the, the breakout topic was drones, right? So DJI mm-hmm. had that big caged in booth, and uh, everyone had some sort of quad or octocopter copter to sell. Um, was there any vibe or buzz uh, outside of that space in VR? Sure. Um, so. So let me know if I don't answer your question. But the drone, so DJI had the Phantom 4 this year. I guess why it was cool is it's got these proximity sensors, so it actually won't allow itself to collide into things. Oh. Um, if you are running up to a tree or a wall, it'll just be like meep, meep, and go in the other direction. So that's cool. <laughs> okay, so the 3DR uh, had a drone with a uh, Kodak SP360 mounted to it. And the SP360 is Kodak's. Um, slightly strange solution for 360 video, and of course, they're another one of their uh, hail mary passes to come back into the to the world of um, broadcast and so on. Mm-hmm. The SP360 is uh, two 180 cameras that you basically ratchet together and put on a stick. Mm. Um, they're they're high quality. They're they're beautifully designed, but it's a little weird that you've got to buy two of them and then stick them together. Mm-hmm. Um, but it actually started to make a lot of sense when I saw it on a 3DR drone because what it does is by being able to separate it, you can put one on the top of the drone and then one oh. on the bottom. And yeah, so and because of the nature of 360, you'll never really see the core of the drone. So I was like, oh, okay, that's how the Kodak works. Well, that's it's really like, interesting. Yeah, that separation gives you some flexibility. So that was cool. Um, the Ricoh Theta S, which is a sort of thumb thumb drive-shaped sh- camera uh, that retails for about 400 bucks, um, And a lot of people were using it for 360 sort of pre and stuff last year. It's lower resolution, but this is the third version of it. Mm. And... It's, you know, it was literally everywhere. I thought it was going to go away by this year, but everybody had a Ricoh Theta. And, and, and we were going to the buffets in Vegas, and there were Ricoh Thetas sitting in the middle of everybody's dining table. And they were hanging off of everybody's windshield uh, rearview mirror. And they were just like – and on the panels, there would be Ricoh Thetas like at the front of the stage and on the side of the stage. So it was like the, the new Polaroid. It was incredible. Um, the reason the Rico is so cool is because the stitching is really good. Yeah. It's instantaneous. And is it a still, you, still camera or is it shooting video? No, it's video. Wow, man. This thing looks great. Yeah. The, the, the stills part actually shoots 4k. Um, and you can do time-lapse. 
So you get 4K time lapse, and I mean you're shooting 4K time lapse in a $400 360 camera that has auto stitching, and you can put it on YouTube, and it's already got the metadata in it so that it just works right out of the box. Bingo! Wow, it's amazing. Uh, and then there was actually a this is a, a little tip I'll give you. My friend Manny told me about it when he was walking the floor. HugVR.com, like hugging somebody, VR.com, is actually a live streaming web app for Ricoh Theta and maybe other cameras as well. I'm not sure, but but we used it with the Ricoh Theta. So you can actually live stream real-time stitched 360 video with a $400 Ricoh Theta to the HugVR platform. <laughs> there you go. That that's the holy grail right there. That's that's astonishing. Wow. It is totally astonishing. And it just shows you uh now, if I go to the other end of the spectrum, mm. one I think the most mind-boggling thing and and this maybe answers your initial question about what was the the lateral buzz um coming up out of the yeah. out of the volcanic rock. Uh it was Actually, no, it's not the volcanic rock. It's the volcanic lava because it's still so molten. But it was light field capture technology. Okay, that's the camera I mistook earlier on when you were talking about the the Mevo. So carry on. I think that's what I was thinking about. Okay, yeah. So that's called the Lytro, L-Y-T-R-O. That's and it, yeah. Yeah, we went to the unveiling of of this thing. And they, the actual Lytro camera is about the size of a small Volkswagen Yep. Uh, <laughs> oh no. Really? It's yeah, it's I like, know it's a big it's boxy like, thing, but is it really that big? It's like putting a refrigerator on its side. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah, and okay, so maybe like a like a Lada or a Mini or whatever, but a mini <laughs> Um so the Lytro for those who don't know and I'll I'll sort of put it down the middle is mm-hmm. effectively something that captures all of the light rays in a room as they are bouncing from all surfaces. So people who work in 3D animation are quite familiar with this idea of ray tracing. Um, But imagine if you were capturing the actual light that is reflecting off of every surface and every angle inside of a room and bottling that for use later on in motion. Yes. Um, Rather than the, the data... Uh, rate of HD, like 1080p, you're now dealing with about 730 megabytes per second, or yeah. something. Yeah, crazy. something like something like 10 times the the, the volume of of data it pumps through the, the, this 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 image sensor. And what's interesting, and forgive, stop me if I'm wrong, but um, we actually, I think, we blogged this earlier on 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 our Twitter feed, but. What was significant about this from a virtual reality perspective is this camera can capture live video of, say, a model, which we would normally do in front of, say, a blue screen or a green screen. But now you don't have to worry about that. You just shoot the model in whatever room you want, and then this camera had some depth where you could cut out and do kind of like a chroma key and put it into, say, a VR environment. Were they demoing that, or did I get the right technology? You got it. I mean... It's so bananas. It's crazy. It is actually crazy. It just disrupts every single, every single blade of the industry that exists. It disrupts cameras. It disrupts 3D animation. It disrupts, you know, rotoscoping and pose. Yeah, the compositing. The whole post-production world would be would be completely changed if it wasn't for the fact that these file sizes were just so ridiculously massive. Right, and if the camera wasn't the size of your fridge, a refrigerator, um, yes, <laughs> yeah, but it'll it'll come down, you know, it'll all get it'll all get there. Now we've been there, um, yeah. I think it's a hundred thousand dollars a day to rent right now, so no. it just it's a no. I'm serious. I'm not even kidding. It's a prototype of prototypes. It's it's <laughs> you know it is it is groundbreaking, completely radical technology, and and this was the first real version of it that will work that they would dare to show. So this is the um, Lytro. Did you see it actually working live? Well, they didn't shoot something on the mm. stage, but what they did demo live, which he was very uh, reticent about, or at least he pretended to be, was this software that, that you would use to process this data, right? So yes. I'm going to try to keep this like interesting and not super dry, but basically <laughs> the software... Imagine that you've got 
this room and there are people playing billiards in this room and what you would actually see is a whole bunch, like millions of points floating around in space that when looked at together look like actual recognizable forms, right? Now, add the light information, like all of the different photons and beams of light that have bounced off of every surface to that, and it starts to look like a three-dimensional image. I can now decide with the software by putting a bunch of nodes on the screen Okay, here's the focal point. Yep. Here's the speed of the lens. I can create a lens that's a 0.2. Oh. Um, I can, you know, you have got depth of field that is so shallow that has literally never been possible before. But rather than faking that in uh, with 3D software, you're saying, oh, this is actually what a 0.2 lens would look like with all of these beams of light floating around. Um, and it's really trippy. Of course, you can now pluck somebody out of that environment because the camera understands, well, this exactly. is at this depth mm-hmm. and this is at that depth. It's like going into a 3D model uh, program and just saying, lift up this model and move it over here. Um, yeah, it's crazy. I don't really <laughs> quite understand because me, as, as a 3D animator, I'm thinking, okay, so it's building the geometry and we're pulling the polys out and it's doing some sort of mapping. But no, it's actually... It's like you said. It's using light as as volume that has z z information, depth information. I don't know, man. It's 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 yeah. really weird to. It, I can't really wrap my head around it, but I've I've heard about the technology and it's it's interesting. It's really really interesting that you've seen it. And then what this is all leading towards is is that integration between live action and and and. Uh, an animated background and, 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 and somehow um, embedding the two together in a really convincing and a really in a real time way that sells the illusion, you know what I'm saying? And and it sounds like this is the direction it's going in. So yeah, I'm, it's interesting you bring that up because that, that demo and that camera and that rig keeps coming up in VR conversations about, man, that's, that's where it's going. But uh, yeah, it's uh, before, before, before the curve, before the curve, it's crazy. Well, I think that you're, podcast um, is expressly well suited to this conversation. If I can Mm. stick on this for even a little bit longer, the thing, the other thing that's amazing about it is lighting and relighting uh, a subject is crazy good. It's like infinitely better than what you could do in Maya right now. Because like, for example, they, when they are shooting this, they, the subject that they were shooting, when we looked at her in just a sort of like, um, a uh, non-detailed or basically just the, the, the beyond the wireframe kind of uh, like level, you could see the pores in her face, the, the minute pimples, every hair follicle was all captured because it's sending back distance information, like depth information from all directions simultaneously. So, so the detail on the woman that they filmed was crazy. Then when they said, okay, now let's just apply like the texture. I don't know where they got the texture. It must have been mm-hmm. photographic. And they applied this texture to her head. Uh, and now she looked like her, photographic, you know, photorealistic. And then they said, now let's light this. So what? they're lighting this by grabbing a point, a node, and dragging it across her face, below her face, to the side of her face, behind her head. And it's grabbing like actually sampled light ray information and Mm. applying it to her face with like fall off with everything. Mm. And it just looked absolutely incredible. And I was like, Oh my God, this was lit from the left. No, it was lit from the right. No, Hmm. it was lit from above. And it looked photorealistic. It disrupts the lighting industry. It disrupts <laughs> like everything. It's, it was crazy. Yeah, yeah. Fortunately, I understand what's going on. So I'm actually in a bit of. I'm, I'm actually kind of overwhelmed by this and in, in what you're describing. And I think it's very significant. And I think we could really, we could really discuss this at at depth. We're, I'm going to have to cut. I'm going to have to break out of that though because that's just incredible yeah. technology. And um, so that was on display at NAB as well this year. Um, maybe before we leave Las Vegas, well, any other sort of takeaways? Like, uh, um, did you did you see any projects coming up? Uh, was there any demos of anything coming up? Again, the NAB is more of a hardware kind of a show. And so you're not really going to see so much content like you would well, say a SIGGRAPH. But like, what did you see? 
Ang Lee had a presentation for his new film, which is shot at 120 frames. That's right. HDR and stereoscopic. Yep. And people mm-hmm. just said it was like watching a new kind of cinema altogether. Mm. Uh, now, I'll tell you, here a, a few blocks from where my studio is in Hollywood, I have the Grauman's Chinese Theater. And they have laser IMAX technology. Um, I think there's only like three or four of these cinemas in North America that have laser IMAX. For people that traditionally hate going to 3D movies because they say it looks dark and the colors yeah. are washed out yeah. and it's annoying, this is this is like watching a Blu-ray TV that's the size of a four-story building. It is so sharp and so punchy and the color is so strong. Um, when I saw the Mad Max movie there, I like had a two-hour anxiety attack. It was so amazing. Uh, and with the Dolby Atmos sound yep. and everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one of the days that we were at NAB, we went to Simpty's uh, presentation at the AMC of Batman versus Superman and you know a preview of the Jungle Book and all this. And we were watching it in HDR, which oh. is high dynamic range. Yes. Um, and it... I mean, it really makes a huge difference. They would sort of do a split screen with like traditional uh, projection, digital projection versus the HDR projection. And, you know, just to people who are still listening to this crazy tech talk. Oh, uh, you know, I, people, we either lost them a long time ago or they are stuck glued to their okay. seat. And I'm telling you, and we lost them a long time ago if we lost them. But I think the people that are here are eating out of your hand. Carry okay, on. cool. So anyways, the bl- the, the black and the white of an HDR projection is so radically different. I mean, it's hard to, you know, this is a funny thing to me. It's like when people say, oh, well, why do we need 8K? You know, the eye can't even differentiate between 4 and 8K. It's like, listen, go back to an old CRT monitor and tell me that, you know, that was the extreme of what we could differentiate. (laughs) Yeah, and it was. I don't know why people keep saying this. I mean, our eyes will acclimate. You know, I saw this article that said, the 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 theoretical limit of what our eyes resolution is per eye for VR is something like 320k um and what are we at now 2k yeah. so i mean we have a long way to go and anyways when we we're watching high dynamic range projection right um the blacks in the in the traditional stuff that we've now become used to looks so milky and washed out and yeah. you know detail just sort of fades into this like dark gray mm-hmm. but when you get into the into the the highlights and stuff i mean that the brightness of a high dynamic range uh, projection per simti's standards the, the 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 number of nits and this like rec 2020 and all this crap <laughs> it is so bright that it actually makes you sh- um uh, reflexively shut your eyes because it's too bright for your eyes. So wow, I've it, never heard interest- that described for a 3D movie. That's that's astonishing. Yeah, and and they were saying, you know, in the in the panel about this at the AMC theater, they said it actually becomes a creative concern. Do you actually mm-hmm. want to cause your audience to forcibly shut their eyes, <sighs> um, and or blink or whatever? Because it's a, now an emotional tool that you can use. This is how bright. The, the output is. So that's interesting. I, I paused there because I was just thinking about the tools that filmmakers are experimenting with to get that interactivity out of the audience and, and in, in VR. And in we, uh, one of our previous guests, uh, Vincent from the NFB, would talk about the fact that some people sometimes get sick in VR. Well, he used that to his advantage and, and did a car, car, car crash simulator. And mm-hmm. uh, it was very interesting to, to use... Like what you're talking about with you know, forcing them to blink or close their eyes because something's actually too bright, that's a tool now that you know maybe we had before, but we certainly don't really have in 3D in terms of things being too bright. But wow, that kind of opens that up again. Yeah, and I, I mean the thing about virtual reality as just a thing that's back into the, in the conversation. Uh, you know, half the time it's not even the literal virtual reality technology or experience that. I think is relevant or interesting. It's the way that these new technologies are helping us to understand the way our brains and bodies work. It's it's like bringing neuroscience down to the street level, and and sixteen year olds are are having conversations about neurological impact of 
you know, the software approaches. That, I mean, it's crazy, but but it's really cool that this has moved out of, you know, these sort of dark philosophical chambers, theoretical discussions in like, you know, Yale and Harvard and MIT, and we're talking about it on the street. And 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 looking at and understanding how we can fool our brains, how we can hijack our neurological and you know reptilian mind or our limbic system or whatever, yeah. and manipulate that for 4D entertainment or whatever that may be. <laughs> and and it, of course that comes with responsibilities because you can seriously screw somebody up if you want to. Now um, it's. You know, here's the simplest parallel I can give you. When you're watching a horror movie at home or in a movie theater with your hot date, you can cover your eyes. You can close your eyes. In VR, you, you actually can't put your hands over your eyes. I mean, you can blink and stuff, but it's mm-hmm. so present. And, and then when you add um, three-dimensional audio and when you're in an IMAX theater and the light is so bright that it's coming through your eyelids – you know the and and also the the, the Dell booth um, actually had the motion chairs there and had a bunch of people sitting in their Gear VR 360 headsets um, in in chairs that were robotically being manipulated. So right. uh, yeah, don't lose that thought. Don't lose that thought. You're you're making you're making a thought about the responsibility of the filmmaker. I think that's y- yeah yeah. I mean, so I'll say this as far as what my part in this is, is when we do the five R's festival, uh, when we do a VRTO meetups, one of the primary concerns and interests and agendas is, is responsible VR making. And, and I don't want to fall into a cliche. A lot of people say this, this kind of stuff, but I mean, legitimately looking at what is our responsibility? It's the same as 3d, you know, uh, I had a friend who was a post supervisor and was doing a lot of 3d stuff in post. And she would say like, these guys come in with these like low budget horror films and they just want to like throw everything at you off the screen. And it's like flying off the sides of the screen and people are just vomiting in the aisles, you know, um, you have to, you have to make it responsibly and, and then figure out a way to use the experience within that. So it's just like a, a a rock concert. I mean, you can't make people's ears physically bleed just because you want impact. There are other ways of finding impact, and sometimes those are just by virtue of contrast. You know, you mm-hmm. want people to pay attention, you whisper. And um, and, and you know, one more creative example: Pacific Rim, Guillermo del Toro's Pacific Rim. Yeah. That one scene where the robots are like, du- or the, the the titans are duking it out in the ocean, and uh, then all of a sudden, yeah. you know what I'm going to say? One of them goes it. sliding across, and then you just see it like hit the little pier, and it goes ding, ding, and yeah, that, and that seagull yeah. goes flying off. It just gives you such a, a contrast to the like the constant churning and the noise and everything, and it makes you think, holy crap, these monsters are huge, and this battle is really intense, and that little moment of respite is what creates the impact something that Michael Bay really needs to learn. Um, <laughs> so so again, that's the kind of stuff that you can do with VR that I think we should teach, that we should discuss in in our training and in our exploration of how to author it, as opposed to, you know, lambasting and, and overwhelming people with stimulation and yep. making them sick and vertigo and jump scares. And I mean... You'll kill somebody. No, you will. And, you know, let's actually pull out of that because you actually touched on on a bit of fibers and 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 VRTO, and maybe we'll pull out of, of Vegas right now and Los Angeles, the world of Los Angeles. But you, you made a very good point there, and I just we can't stress that enough. This is a new kind of filmmaking, um, but also too there are. are, are there are techniques in place that you can use to your advantage and sometimes subtlety. And like you said, um, contrasting messages uh, tells the message better or, or, or starting loud and, and, and ending quiet or, or, or just the something as simple as a whisper, literally or visually, will really force you to stop and look again and uh, see where you're at. But you mentioned like, there, uh, talking about the, the other work that you're doing. So in addition to all of this and the traveling and, your, and the work that you're doing in L.A., you're also planning – a virtual reality conference and expo in Toronto. And you're planning this with your colleagues that are spread out between L.A. and Toronto. Mm-hmm. 
you're incredible. This is so much going on, but it's really important that uh, I think people know that this is happening. So can you tell us a little bit about now what's happening in Toronto in the world of virtual reality this summer? Sure. So um, in 2015, we did a show called The VAR Show, the Virtual and Augmented Reality Showcase. And we did that at the Ryerson uh, University where they have – Ryerson University where I actually studied uh, 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. What did you, uh, you study there? New media. It was the first year of the new media program. So they basically just took radio, TV, film, and wait a minute, wait a minute, hold the hold, stop the press. So when, do you remember what year that would have been? Ninety five or ninety six. Was that the uh, the media arts program with the photo arts building? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Were you the first year? First year. I was in the second year of that program. Awesome. That's incredible. Wow. <laughs> that experience and the whole, you know, Professor Bob Scott, he was doing crazy stuff with interactive hyperlink. And like people <laughs> thought he was insane. This, Like you said, yeah, this was like the 90s, early 90s. And, um, you know, we had like the computer graphics lab on the, the, the third floor with the IBM XTs and the target cards that we were literally oh, peeking God, yeah. and poking with assembly language. Holy cow. Sorry, listeners. Um we actually had the same stomping ground. We probably crossed paths. That's yeah, we, incredible. We, we may have, yeah. So that. Sorry, guys. That, so carry on. That's really. <laughs> I'm gonna look. I'm gonna totally look 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 you up a little bit deeper there in terms of your Ryerson connection. But uh, that's really cool. Sorry. Well, go yeah, on. that was a really cool year. So it really ever was. since then, um, Ryerson has basically eaten half of the city of Toronto. Yeah. They now actually own uh, the former Maple Leaf Gardens where the Toronto Maple Leafs played hockey for so many years, which I think of as, you know, one of the sort of symbolic hearts of the city, yeah. if not the symbolic heart of the city besides the dome. Um, and that's where we're going to put on this conference actually, uh, because I feel like what we want to do is to create this gateway into the heart of Canada via Toronto and invite people that I've found I kind of think of it like the Muppet movie, you know, I'm like going around in this like beat up old school bus and trying to find really interesting people to join my band. Yep. Um, so I've been going to Vegas and to Los Angeles and every meetup I can find around here, uh, Silicon Beach, which is on the west side of LA, the mm -hmm. new Silicon Valley, and and finding people that are really pushing at the seams of of thought about how we enter into this new age of immersive technology and internet of things, IOT stuff, um, and augmented reality. And there's going to be a lot of people that kind of take the easy way. You know, they're going to start putting up crappy apps on the app store, yeah. clones of each other, just this mush, this dollar store bargain bin crap. But then there's the people who remember what it was like when the internet first became available to the public. And it was so beautiful because – People from around the world were truly communicating for the first time. Tribes were meeting each other and exchanging information, and it was good. And then paywalls <laughs> came, and then passwords and paywalls came. Mm -hmm. And then everything started to get more and more into sales funnels and homogenized, and now basically people just go on Facebook. Um, so I am trying to build a conference that is – you know, a lot of people are trying to make this promise, but I'm trying to make a conference that's disruptive – that is lighting fires, that is exploring our responsibilities, um, and, and so on. So we're going to have a, a VR hackathon, which unlike some hackathons where it's just there to get people to make stuff for you for free, this is to really explore like web VR, um, 3D printing, 3D scanning, hacks, and you know stuff like that. I've got some amazing kids that I met in Los Angeles that are doing truly – outside the box work uh, that I'm going to bring down. And Toronto itself is a host to some really important figures. Uh, James McRae is the founder of Janus VR, which is this web VR technology. He's from Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, I've got, you know, uh, uh, Jay Lee Williams, who is the director, the so-called director of stuff and things uh, at Occupied VR, who's one of the busiest VR companies. Um, and he'll be coming out and uh, Blair Renault, who runs Iris VR and won the Artistic Achievement Award for his Technolust uh, Blade Runner simulator uh, VR experience. So 
And and of course, we're going to have you come out, Rick, and yeah. talk about about you know animation and VR and techniques and all of that, bringing so, a different perspective to it for sure. Uh, a little more hands on, a little more organic for, for animators thinking about. Basically, it's it's the it's the roadshow version of this podcast that you're listening to right now, and everything that I've learned on the show, and the contacts that I've made, and and the interesting connections that I made with a, just a, a huge, really, really wide variety of technologies, kind of comes together on this show. So I'm um, thank you, thank you for inviting me, and what an esteemed list of people already. And at the time of this recording, you know, we're just we're just getting started. <laughs> yeah, we really are. So. So basically, that's that VAR show we did in 2015, and we did it at the Ryerson uh, Digital Media Zone uh, yep. in the Student Learning Center, which is quite a building. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, we did the first 5Rs Festival of, of VR Stories uh, in September, right alongside the Toronto Film Festival. Uh, people told me I was crazy to do it against TIFF, but I said, All right, why? I mean... TIFF is bringing in 800 international producers and delegates. That's yep. exactly who I want to come and see new approaches to storytelling. So the thing, again, that differentiates 5Rs, I think, from some of the other uh, virtual reality experiences that you're seeing at, at festivals is that our real legitimate, uh, sincere focus is on looking for experimental mechanics um, in terms of approaches to storytelling. It's not to just showcase the best so-called stuff, but to really present 20 different experiments that are in some way demonstrating a unique mechanic for how to approach narrative in immersive experiences. It may not be linear. It may be broken. It may fail. But those are very important things to observe in defining a new way to tell our stories um, mm-hmm. I think if there was such a moment as, as, as modern literature, the birth of modern literature, if we look at Joyce, if we look at, you know, the novel as this thing about what's inside of the author's mind or the, or the protagonist's mind and, and so on, I think we're going towards an even, an equally, um, watershed moment in how we are going to impart our stories. And the, there's, there wasn't a lot of really good talk about this at NAB. There was a lot of very vanilla kind of going on and rehashing the same stuff, but there were one or two panels where things got a little smoky and, and charged about what people believe defines narrative in, in VR. And they were truly, truly interesting because Again, these things are not about the technology, literally. These things are about us, and they're allowing us to look at ourselves and how we parse information and what if, – if anything matters to a human, it's storytelling. <laughs> yeah, it I knew you were going that way. That's perfect. Yeah, That's perfect. I mean, it really life is. Life is about what was the story that you told. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why we have calendars. That's why we have journals. That's why we have relationships. It's this legacy of memories that we build up and up like a mountain of putty that eventually either is a great fo- photograph that we are happy with or is one in which we are gravely disappointed. And then we make adjustments for how to continue into our future. So this is, again, what I call a major ontological self-examination where we look at the very nature of what it is to be human. And... And for me, 5Rs is that wild um, science fair happening somewhere between Tesla and Edison's um, workshops to figure out where is that possibly taking us and and what is the road to the future. Um, And now, to bring that all around, we're putting all of that together, the VAR showcase and the 5Rs festival and the the VRTO meetups, which are very hands-on, and putting it all under... One giant roof, mm-hmm. and we're calling it the VRTO World Conference and Expo um, 2016, and it's in the heart of Toronto, which I feel is one of the most innovative and thought-provoking um, uh, pools of thought and creativity and technological examination and research, and all I can do is set the stage, and who knows what will happen from there. The, I, I, people are hooked. I, how do they find out more? Where do they find out about the show? So you can go to conference.virtualreality.to mm-hmm. and you can follow us. Uh, the VRTO is 
on all social media platforms is VR Toronto. And 5Rs is always 5Rs Stories, F-I-V-A-R-S-T-O-R-I-E-S. It's astonishing what you're building here or what you've built and doing it remotely. Who's your – sure, can you give a shout-out to some people that are helping sort of locally here in Canada to make this happen as well? Absolutely. Um, so my crew is really interesting. Joseph Ellsworth, who uh, built 5Rs with me, is a long-time – virtual reality technologist. So he is familiar with every one of the platforms. He's constantly out there at the meetups running demos, troubleshooting people's computers, teaching them about how these HMDs work. You know, he was there with the the Oculus DK1 all the way through to now he owns his own Vive. Yep. Um, so he's handling that stuff and making sure that those experiences go smoothly, helping me find the best content that we can find. Jesse Blaze is uh, one of our chief uh, uh, organizing directors, and she is comes from running expos actually. So she runs the Transformer Con and the and the 1980s Toy Conference and the Pet Cons, but also uh-huh. um, really understands how to make that show floor pop and and what mistakes to avoid and so on. Um, and she's a real vr evangelist now i mean she she went hard into this stuff as soon as she kind of crossed paths with us right uh josh udry is a friend of mine for 20 years he used to produce um my live music uh events with me and he's been a tour manager and run concerts around the world so he's coming in and making sure that all the av elements are going to be awesome and there's some things i can't as of today, but probably tomorrow could, <laughs> could confirm for you that are going to be happening as far as um, spectacle and entertainment at this thing. Mm-hmm. But I can assure you that I will work my hardest to create unique experiences that you have not yet seen anywhere else. Cameron, what you touch is all about quality and storytelling and the whole package, the whole deal. And I know people that come to the show or be a part of the show will not be disappointed. So I... We've gone way over time. I really appreciate your time, but I'm going to actually cut you loose right now. But I give you a promise. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I'll give you a promise. Uh, we're going to keep promoting this. And as the more news comes out about the show, uh, make sure you update us and w- check out the show notes um, on our blog on rd.xyz. The dates we're looking at right now. And again, this I think we're pretty much sure on the dates now. It's June 25th to the 27th, 2016. Mm-hmm. And the the main the main website right now, the landing page right now is conference.virtuality.to. Virtual reality. Virtual reality. I'm sorry, I messed that up. Dot to. And um, and again, uh, what's the best way to reach you? How's the best way to reach you? Uh, I would say write to me at VR Toronto on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course there's a contact form at virtualreality.to, which is uh, VRTO's main website. Exactly. And what's coming up uh, in in Toronto or L.A. or both uh, between now and, and June? Oh, man. There are so many interesting things. <laughs> uh, tomorrow I'm going to go to something called Inside L.A. Uh, – uh, sorry, Inside VR L.A. And we have people speaking there from, uh, from Weaver and from yep. Disney. And I mean every day there's another meetup now in Los Angeles. In Toronto, while I'm doing this uh, podcast – Jesse Blaze, who I mentioned, is at DigiFest, which is a three-day that's right, that's right. digital festival that's, that's right now. totally sold out in Toronto. And Joseph is running the VR pavilion at Hot Docs, which is a 10-day documentary festival. <sighs> which I think is also mm, – no, that's not sold out. The DigiFest was sold out. Um, yeah, but I mean Hot Docs is the largest documentary crazy. festival. It really is. So my people are out there pounding the pavement and making it happen. And <laughs> there's just – you know. The, I think if you if you are not yet uh, in the space and you really want to get into the space um, and not just be an outside uh, observer, go to meetup.com mm-hmm. and just do a search for virtual reality and then go and actually go out to these meetups. Just join all the meetups you can and go out to these things. They're incredible. There's usually 20 to 80 people at these things. They're all just curious. A lot of them are making things. I always encourage people, I mean, literally of any age, um, 10 to to 80 years old, 90 years old, I say, 
don't be afraid of this technology. Even though I talked about a bunch of crazy tech stuff in this, it's really accessible. It, it's sometimes as easy as downloading one piece of software, watching a YouTube video, and dragging and dropping things in. And you can get a free Google Cardboard or one for $5, and you can start making things. And, and it's really important for me that people do that because everybody's story is an absolutely unique point of view. And it's those stories that we want to hear. It, it's it's not the technologist stories that we want to hear expressly. It's it's you, Grandpa, and you, 12-year-old kid who <laughs> no one is paying attention to, and you, person across the ocean who I thought of as an enemy country, and you, a guy that works at the variety store. Those stories are the ones that we have to receive in a way that we haven't been able to before. Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm cutting you off because I'm telling you right now, I, I, your enthusiasm is infectious and uh, it's, it's just wonderful to have you finally, finally on the show. Please keep us posted on the, the, the work that's coming up right now. Again, the VRTO show coming up uh, June 25th to the 27th, 2016 in Toronto. Meetups coming up again. The, uh, perfect. Go on Meetup and search uh, for VR meetups in your part of the woods. And uh, what a thrill! This has been great. I am so excited and so pumped, and just really eager to hear about the developments that are going to be coming up with the show. So, best of luck with that, and keep us posted. And uh, if you have any questions about the show, best way to reach me rd rd dot xyz or on Twitter rdxyz. I'm Rick. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. We'll we'll catch you later. Bye bye.